There's got to be a way of killing it. How? How do we do it? You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? You admire it. I admire its purity. Survival. Well clouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. I can't lie to you about your chances, but you have my sympathies. Welcome to The Fear of God, episode 39. We are a podcast exploring the intersection between the horror genre and Christianity. And having that conversation every week is myself, Reed Lackey. And myself, Nathan Rouse. And uh, we're just really, really happy that you guys are here. We're excited to be talking about the film that we're talking about today. But before we dive right into that, Nathan, how you doing? I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm happy <laughs> they're here. I'm happy you're here. Hey, I, I had a random idea that I thought would be fun with a, a new mini segment oh. called uh, "What You're Watching, What You're Reading." It's just, hey. a, it's just a way to because you and I consume stuff beyond strictly the horror genre. Um, we like to we be, do we like to be well rounded individuals. That's true. And you know, I, I'm just curious if we you want to take a minute and talk about what you're watching, what you're reading. Yeah, what you watch, Yeah, let's do that. Okay, so. Um this week, uh, I've not been watching a whole lot because most of my uh, most of my viewing time is consumed with the show. But I have started to read again. The well, I, part of it is again. I'm I'm diving into officially the uh, Mr. Mercedes trilogy, the okay. Hodges trilogy, yeah, yeah. Stephen King by Stephen King. Um, I reread Mr. Mercedes, and for That's any of our listeners book. out there. Oh, my goodness. It's actually my third time rereading it because, uh, silly as it sounds, I reread it when Finders Keepers came out to try to, um, you know, read that book. But circumstances didn't allow me to finish that. So now I'm I'm back into Finders Keepers. I'm about where I was before. And I'm very excited because uh, after this recording, I'm probably going to go read uh, deeper into that story. And I'm really excited. Oh, Finders to, Keepers. So you, uh, Finders so Keepers, you, yeah. So in my parlance, I might say that uh, Riri is re re reading finder, uh, uh, Mr. Mercedes, <laughs> you know, that is, is that right? Is that, 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 would that, be, right? that would be accurate. Uh, that's, that's a good series. That's a good series. I particularly loved, I mean, I like Mr. Mercedes a lot. I really, really enjoyed finders keepers. So I'll be curious to see, uh, follow up with us when you, uh, when you finish that, I want to know when I finish, I will, yeah, yeah, yeah. I will. Um, yeah, so it'll probably take me a little while, but, but yeah, I'm, uh, I'm excited to, to get into that and finally, concluded that's some of the major works by him that i haven't read yet so um well something i'm watching so 
you and I exchange brief words on this on Facebook, uh, not fighting words, just words. Um, <laughs> words were had. Right, right. Words were typed. <laughs> um, so I've got two, I've got three children, but two of them are old enough to kind of watch and enjoy media. Well, this, this Anne with an E that just hit Netflix. Oh, yeah, yeah. Anne of Green Gables. So, uh, confession time. Megan follows as Anne Shirley in the 1985 Sullivan is the production house out of Canada that made those right. films was my first like media love. I mean, I have such. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, such, such. I don't blame you. Had, had such a fierce crush on Megan Follows as Anne Shirley. So I really enjoyed those as a youngster and was interested to see where they go with this. Three episodes in. It's, it's good. It's good. Um, the the amount of affection I have for that original, it's hard to completely set aside and, and engage this. But uh, that said, it is a strong entry. But I'm going to tell a funny little story here. So I will say it's rated PG. But in the third episode, um, for any of you and Shirley nerds out there, and I know there are many, um, <laughs> you, you know, Anne is trying to ingratiate herself with the the other girls of her age at the little schoolhouse. You know, she becomes friends with Diana Barry, right? Come on, help me out, Reed. Right? Oh, yeah, well, of course. Gilbert Blythe, you know, the whole nine. Right, right. Yeah, well, Josie Pye, right? Oh, so yes, in yes. in this version, th- they they include something that is in the original, and that's Anne seeing a teacher and an older student sort of flirting. I don't know if this rings a bell for mm. you at all. Well, that happens. Yeah, it's been a long one. time since I've seen Anne of Green Gables. Oh, you're going to love where this goes. So, my wife and I are watching this with our eight and six-year-old. And it's actually, oh, it's no. actually a really <laughs> poignant moment where a few minutes after this flirtation happens, Anne is trying to convey to these girls that she's trying to become friends with what she saw. Well, the, the significance of the scene is meant to say, Anne, who is this orphan child, has seen more. She's been exposed to more than she should have. And it's really sad and tragic. And we should feel bad for her. Mm. Mm. What plays out in the scene is Anne talking about the teacher's pet mouse and how all men have a pet mouse. And, oh, no. And yes, it is, it is mortifying. So we're <laughs> sitting there. My, my body temperature is going through the roof. Like, <laughs> oh my God, what is happening right now? But it's, that, oh, it's no. that kind of moment where you're like, do I pause it? What do I do? You know, do you, cause if you draw, if you pause it, you're drawing attention to it. Um, <laughs> fortunately, we skipped past it and then we later on went and looked at what it was. It does get a little more trying and traumatic in ways that I wouldn't want my eight and six year old to hear. But the really funny <laughs> part is in the middle of the scene, my eight year old is like, daddy, do you have a pet mouse? <laughs> oh, <laughs> no. No, I don't, I don't have a pet mouse. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know what they're talking about. When my sweet six-year-old, when we skip past it, like, without missing a beat, she goes, I don't understand. And I said, I, said, I don't either. I don't either. So, we skipped right past it. So, so yeah. And with an E. Uh, oh, my you know, gosh, Recommended, is... but be, be. But with a caveat. Yes. If, if you're, they're going to talk about pet mice. Um, ooh, ooh. Yeah. We mentioned this last week. We're likely to mention it every single episode that until it concludes, but I'm caught up on leftovers. No! I was going to ask you that. Oh my gosh, that last one, the Matt Jamison episode, if any of you watch it at home. Holy cow. Oh, that was, that was incredible. There, that was, that show is that operating at a next level. Like it, re- it really is. It really is. And, and it's, it's on this kind of thing. I mean, Lindelof's work kind of does this for us anyway. And it's appropriate. We're talking about Lindelof uh, yeah. in, in this episode that we're having yeah. because, you know, we, we might give some lip service to the rest of the franchise, but 
the thing about Lindelof and specifically with The Leftovers is that every single time I finish an episode of The Leftovers, I always have the same feeling. I say, man, that was good. And then right on its heels, I say, man, I got to write something. Oh, I got to start. I got to start. Is, yeah. It is a masterwork. Oh, like- it really is. And it's very inspiring. It's it's because it's so complex. But I mean, as the season two theme song says, because there's different theme listeners who haven't seen the show may not realize there's different theme songs for uh, not only every season, but in season three for every episode. Right. But the the refrain of let the mystery be uh-huh. is such a compelling and inspiring sort of idea to just dive into a story or to a thematic exploration. And Lindelof does it masterfully here. I mean, he would say himself, he would insist that it's a team of people who are sure. doing this. So I'm going to so I'm going to acknowledge yeah, that. Yeah. But as one of the driving leading forces behind it, he's just doing some brilliant work. He's doing well, some amazing and, and work. Well, and you and I are both diehard Lost fans, and and, yeah. and and Leftovers isn't really flirting with surpassing that for me or supplanting it. Um, but uh, I do think thematically, in many ways, Leftovers is the most perfect distillation of what he was trying for on Lost, I think, uh, if that makes any sense. Like... Lost had a lot of network kind of baggage attached to it and and conventions associated with it. But thematically, he is really barking up the almost the exact same tree. Um, I don't know if you would sort of echo that. But, but, oh, no, I certainly would. Yeah. Even after I watch it the next day, I want to talk to my wife about it who doesn't watch it. I don't even know how to, I don't even know how to talk about it. I'm like, I'm in the same boat. My wife doesn't watch it either. And I, I, I told her, like, I said, I don't know. I don't even know if you would like this show. Like it's so it's so profoundly unique that I'm not certain what the audience is for this. I mean, I right. think, it, and then that's not to say that it's that it's bad by any stretch. It's actually incredibly compelling, but it's so difficult to describe for someone who's not watching the show exactly what this show is and what it's trying to do. Right. Um, yeah, it's it it's really outstanding. It's an outstanding masterful, tight little piece. 28 episodes. I mean, we haven't seen the last three. Um, nobody has. Yeah, it's it's just something that is uh, just stunning that it is uh, that it exists, that it's in the world, that this kind of storytelling is possible is really yeah. inspiring and staggering. Well, my final what you're watching, what you're reading, I'm so glad you caught up on that because I, I was actually going to ask you about that today um, and forgot to. Um, uh, another, another show we've watched the first season of, if you haven't seen any of Reed, you should definitely watch it, uh, especially listeners too, but Master of None, uh, just released a second oh, season. It's, it's on fantastic. my radar, but I haven't watched it. I, yeah. I love, I love that little guy and, uh, <clears throat> you yeah. and Aziz, I'm sorry. Right. right um, right. right. <laughs> uh, but we just watched the first episode of season two and, and it's, you know, he's, he's really turning into a, a kind of powerhouse creative force in his own right. I mean, he directed it. He wrote it. He stars in it. The first episode yeah. is like an homage to French cinema while being hysterical at the same time. It's, it's oh, really, wow. yeah, it's really a great piece of work. Um, and those are only 30 minute episodes, like 10 ish per season. So it's real easily digestible. Gotcha. Anyway, so that was the, that was the closure. Of, did you have anything else? You know, the only thing that I was going to mention, but, uh, I'll, I'll save it for We're when here. I actually watch it, uh, to go into in deep with this. But, uh, per your continual recommendations, my wife's affection for it and season three coming on May 19th, I am officially going to be checking out Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. So I will report back <laughs> once I once I actually watch that show. I will yes. report back. Um, yes. Season three is coming May nineteenth. My wife wants to watch it, so I said, "You know what? Nathan's been 
pushing me to watch that show for forever. Why don't I why don't I go ahead and catch up on seasons one and two and then I'll watch season three with her. It's so. a lot of fun. It's just, it's yeah, just I'm looking quirky forward to it. and zany and absurd in the ways that are kind of fun. Uh, if you are wondering where that came from in an outtake of our split episode, if you go to the <laughs> post, the post credit sequence on the split episode, you're going to hear me sing the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt theme song. Oh, um, wonderful. all right. So that was first, uh, what you read and what you're watching. Um, so let's, go. here, here we are. So read, we do have something, um, a fun little bit of business we want to take care of, um, yes. before diving into the, the, the substance of our show today. Um, I think I, I think I speak for you, Reed. Um, I know I speak for myself when I say we had just a hell of a time on Springtime for Shyamalan. That was just oh, a, absolutely unquestionable. A, a really good time, um, you know. And and in in that way, we always try to catch lightning in a bottle. We're doing Springtime for Shyamalan two, the sequel. Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, it's, but, we're covering all the same films, just continuing the conversations. <laughs> you say you joke, but that would actually be a lot of fun. I'm sure we could find more to talk about, um, awesome. even just little 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 15 minute minisodes. Um, That's hilarious. But in the spirit of that, uh, you and I off pod have really been kind of brainstorming. You know, realizing the amount of fun that a focused kind of series of episodes can yield. Um, we are enjoying this universal, this walk through the universal lot, um, right, as we're doing right. this year. Uh, but even that, as it's sort of stretched out a little bit, you know, sometimes doesn't get quite the level of, um, cohesion that some of these springtime for Shyamalan's did. Um, sure. so in the spirit of that have really been, you know, batting around these ideas. What are some, what are some other series we can get to? And, and ideally on the soonish side and, and one of those. Um, we, we actually, this is going to be so fun when we start to roll all these out. We do have three in mind for the rest of the year, um, possibly more, but specifically three at the moment. Um, one of those we want to reveal today because they are going to, um, you, the listener are going to uh, participate in, in some of the selection process, uh, for this particular series. But, um, realizing part of the fun of Shadowland was just, those are movies that, were released um during our heyday of movie watching you know right, um, right. This, this is when we kind of really started to develop our you know acumen for movie watching and digesting um and so recognizing that there was some significance to that we wanted to do something similar and so have developed uh coming in october um you can get your hashtags ready we are going to be doing uh, fear of gods hashtag i love the 90s um, yep. you know, title a bit of throwback to the old VH1 show, but specifically <laughs> we're going to do a walk through some of the more significant, um, horror films of the decade 1990s. Um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to that read. I don't know if you've really been, uh, oh, I, can't I, I know you and I both been scouring some of these Google lists, you know, of, mm -hmm. of what, what to start considering, but I wanted to throw it to you because we want to get the listeners involved in this process. Yes, absolutely. So, listeners, you have a mission, should you choose to accept it, um, and we hope you will. So, we are going to, in conjunction with hashtag I love the 90s, we are going to be accumulating a listener-selected favorite horror films of the 1990s. Um, that means you guys are going to nominate the films. You guys are going to uh, calculate the list. We are going to submit as part of this series that we're going to be doing towards the end of the year. It'll be closer to, it'll be in the fall, probably to coincide with Halloween. But when we do that series, we are going to have co uh, compiled a list of what your favorite horror films of the 1990s are. So to get started with that, 
we need your participation. So for the next couple of months, we'll we'll mention this every episode or so, just to remind you to submit your list. We're going to ask you to nominate some films to us that you think belong on the favorite films, favorite horror films of the 1990s. And how you do that is this. I want you to email, just pull up your trusty email and email fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. Make your subject heading hashtag I love the 90s. Just put that in your subject heading. No, no other distinction is needed. Hashtag I love the 90s. And in the body of that email, you can say hello to us. You can mention how you feel about the show, whether you love it, hate it. Love us, hate us, whatever you feel. Um, but somewhere in the body of that email, submit to us up to 10 films that you think belong on a list of favorite horror films of the 1990s. So two things I want to say. Uh, three things, actually. First thing, you do not have to rank your list. So this is just the nomination process. You can just throw 10 films into a body of an email and submit it to us. So you don't have to rank them. The second thing I'll say is you don't have to submit 10. If you'd like to participate, but you can't think of 10, you only know of four, submit four. That's fine. This is just the nomination process. So, but up to 10. I know that some of you out there, <coughs> Blake, um, would love to submit 50. Don't do that. Just submit <laughs> up to 10 and uh, unranked, just submit up to 10 uh, films that you think belong on this list. And with these kind of lists, there's always this argument of, is it favorite? Is it best? Uh, what? How do you define that? We're just going to eliminate those distinctions. We're going for favorite. We want your favorites, personal yeah. favorites. You may think it's, you know, objectively a real garbage movie, but good Lord, you love it. That's the list that we want to see. So um, if it's your favorite, if it's one of your favorite films of the 1990s, whether you think it's a guilty pleasure, whether you think it's a masterpiece, whatever you feel, submit those to us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. We're going to take the next couple of months to receive nominations. And then we'll take all those nominations and submit those to you to compile the favorites list. So we're really excited about the series. We hope that we get a lot of participation. We usually have a decent amount of participation for our surveys, but um, we really hope that all of you guys will uh, join with us in celebrating hashtag I love the 90s. Thank you so much, Nathan, for suggesting this. This is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, that's that is going to be a lot of fun. So so Reed, are, are you ready? I mean, if uh, I don't know, man, you know, I'm pretty freaked you, out. If you need to scream, do it now, because you know in space, they just, they're not going to hear you. Nobody can hear you. No. So get get those out now. Buckle buckle up, because mother's calling. (laughs) Oh, Um, mother's calling. Oh. Yeah. So, yeah, if you haven't picked up on uh, our little banter here, and if you didn't read the top of the episode, we are spending the remainder of our time in this episode 39 discussing Ridley Scott's 1979 horror sci-fi masterpiece, Alien. So I want to talk for a few minutes about just the the, the series in general. Uh, we don't have to dive into every film. In fact, I don't even know if you've seen every film. Have, have you seen the entire Alien franchise have, or what? Other other than the AVPs of the world, Ugh. yes, I've seen I've seen all the proper Alien movies, including Prometheus. Oh, now I wouldn't be able to speak real, you know, fluently on all of them because it's been That's years fine. since I've you know seen all of them but yes i have seen all the sure movies. sure do you like the whole franchise i mean do you do you think they're they're generally good yeah movies? i generally have a fondness for it i mean like you know things like i remember going to see i think it's is the third one yeah the third one's david fincher the yes uh is that Resur- uh what's what's that one called 
That one's just called Alien 3. Oh, okay. Resur- Alien Resurrection is the, the fourth one. That was written by Joss Whedon and directed by a, a French director whose name escapes me. And even if I had it in front of me, I wouldn't be able to pronounce. But yeah. Right. Because you're American. Um, no, I did go see Alien 3 with my dad in the theaters. I've got a fond memory of that. And Oh, wow. You know, yeah, just... Um, I mean, there's nothing quite like the memory tied to uh, uh, the chest burster sequence in this particular film. So, yeah, I've, I've always had a bit of a fondness for this series. I, I, you know, it, it's it's interesting how these movies become so iconic and classic. You know what I mean? Like, right, like, right. You know, the fact that we are on the precipice. Uh, you and I are recording, I believe the week or the week before Covenant comes out and. Right, right. You know, I mean, that's kind of impressive. We'll see how that, how that goes, how that is. Sure, um, sure. I liked Prometheus. Um, mm-hmm. here's, here's the thing. I don't, I just don't have enough emotional investment to like, I'm not one of those nerds who was like, Oh my God, Prometheus wasn't an alien movie. It was a different oh, right. something, you know, like, right. It was fun. Right. I like Lindelof. He was attached to it. Got, got, you know, kind of wrongly excoriated for it. It is what it is. Let's move on, you know. Sure, um, sure. Well, and, and I made an, I had the privilege of guesting on, uh, our, our friends over at Feel and Film podcast with, uh, Aaron White and, uh, our friends over at The Body and the Blood. Blake Collier was on that podcast as well. We discussed the entire, Alien franchise. And in that, I made a comment about Prometheus that I want to reiterate here because it, because it really sort of, um, I think it, it, it helped solidify for me what some of the problems were with it. Going back to Springtime for Shyamalan, there was a, a wonderful little surprise at the end of Split. And it was, uh, you know, we don't need to go into too much of that here. You can listen to our other episodes, but everybody seemed to love that surprise at the end of Split. Well, when Prometheus was first coming out, it wasn't initially marketed as an alien movie. It was just a science fiction episode. I mean, it's called Prometheus. It's not called Alien Prometheus the way Alien Covenant is. It was not marketed as an alien film. It was marketed as a new science fiction film by Ridley Scott. But it leaked out that it was connected to the alien universe. And I think that's part of what went wrong with it in terms of audience expectation is because can you imagine what the difference would have been had everybody gone into Split knowing that Split was already a part of that universe. Right. But then not getting to see anything of that universe until the last, like, two minutes. Sure, sure. The, the response might have been dramatically different. And I feel like with Prometheus, the other sort of hang-up with it, we, you know, with the, with the first film, which we're, you know, in a few moments going to dive deep into here, with the first film, the first film is like science fiction horror. And we're not the first people to say this, but the second film is more like sci-fi action. Um, sure. You know, there there are different sort of tones to each of the films in the franchise. And one of the things that I think about Prometheus is that Prometheus is very much a straightforward science fiction film. Like, it's a film about ideas more than it is about scares or suspense or, or any sort of bombast. It's a, a film kind of exploring this idea of the creation of life and uh, the creation of destruction and all all of these sorts of uh, disparate elements coming together in a very esoteric way. And I think the audience wasn't quite ready at large for that. And that's not to let it off the hook for maybe fumbling the ball a bit on execution as well. But I think that was a big driving force behind it is it didn't, of course, people would say it didn't feel like an alien movie because it was very much sort of a precursor to that part of that world and far more about ideas than it was about sort of diving into Xenomorphs, splitting skulls and everything. But, you know, I, 
I I am kind of an apologist for Prometheus. I think it's a I think it is a wrongfully sort of berated film, and I think it's gorgeous to look at. It's sure. it's absolutely beautiful to watch, and it's not perfect. And I would well, even it reminds say, it reminds me of conversations we had around the time of like um like a Suicide Squad, and you talk about audience expectation and reaction. Right, and like there's right. such. And hear me, I, I actually I don't care for Suicide Squad at all and, and would not put it and Prometheus in the same basket. But in terms of, I remember you talking at that point in time about entitlement. You know, there's such this, right, like, right. once fans of alien mythology, xenof- xenomorphology, if you will, <laughs> uh, caught wind this is connected, well, then all bets are off and the gloves right, came right. off. And suddenly, well, it's not this. It didn't have face huggers and chest bursters right. and <clears throat> all the stuff. And Lindelof sucks and he screwed up lost. And you know what I mean? It's just yeah, like, you yeah. know, all bets were off in terms of people being able to accept it just on it, what it is, you know, I mean, right. I, and you and I go back and forth on conversations like this about media in general. Like, I don't want, like you said, I don't want to let a thing off the hook for weaknesses it might have. But at the same time, Prometheus or otherwise, you've got to be able to, at the end of the day, assess what the piece of media actually is, not what you right. sort of want it to be or what you sort of anticipated it to be. Like, exactly. that's just an unfair sort of. And that's, again, that's not letting weak media or, 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 or something with weaknesses off the hook. It is saying you still have to sort of assess what you actually got, not versus what you wanted to get. Exactly. And people have a really difficult time with that, especially nerds and fanboys. So, but, uh, you know, sort of rewinding, as it were, all the way back to this first film in the franchise. One one of the things I'll say about this film before I rattle off a few trivial bits is every single time I watch this film, I'm stunned at how well it holds up. I mean, it's... Yeah, it's nearly it's nearly forty years old now. Um, it works, and and it is just amazing. It's just absolutely staggering how effective the entire film is. I cannot remember exactly when I saw it. Um, this is one of those that I you know sort of caught a, in a swirl of a bunch of other things, and I'm not entirely sure um, exactly what age I first saw it. But I mean, it's, it's probably one of those- seven. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. We'll just, we'll just say seven. Um, but, uh, it's one of those things that has just continued to build in my esteem. When I made my big list, my Which favorite one? 200, <laughs> oh. right. My favorite 250 films of all time, Alien ranked in at number 25. Wow. It is a, a very important film for me. Like it's something that I, that I cherish a great deal. And, uh, it's something that I think I am always ready to watch. Anytime anybody says like, Hey, you know, h- how about we check out alien? I'm like, yes, the answer is yes. I could have seen it last night. Somebody be like, can we watch it? Yes. I'll watch alien. I'll watch that movie almost any day of the week, anytime, no matter how many times I've seen it. I think it's, I think it's amazing. Does it how keep, do you like it? Does it keep getting funnier? Every, Every single time, single I, see time I see it. Um, <laughs> I did. So, I did uh, think. I did think while I was watching it, like you, we didn't. Um, we didn't prep it this way by any means. But you know, you you talked about uh, frailty with Bill Paxton and William Peter Blatty on The Exorcist, and we're going to be talking about Silence of the Lambs in relation to Demi. Uh, you know, he he was not a directorial piece in Alien, but old um, John Hurt. Died this year. I know. Yeah, um, that that is really sad. So you know, we can we can consider this our John Hurt eulogy as well. 
Okay, um, I'll, I'll I'll be happy doing that because man, John Hurt was just an outstanding actor. You know what's in, you know what's interesting about about John Hurt now this, and I'm not trivializing his passing. I would I wouldn't do that intentionally at all. But what's interesting about it is, and I wrote this down as I was watching this, that John Hurt's character Kane is first in everything. He's first to wake up. He's first to encounter the the aliens. Um, he is first to die. And in real life, John Hurt was the first of this core cast, actually the first of the entire cast to to pass away, except for uh, the actor who actually plays the alien. Um, he was, but, but he doesn't alien- matter. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, that's that's awesome. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, I mean, John Hurt was just a just an outstanding performer and uh and yeah it's 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 very very sad that he's gone um but uh his his performance in this is amazing and yeah i mean i, I have a few i have a few trivial yeah, bits hit us, hit us um, with your bits um so uh just a few brief things the first one is um did you know that ripley was almost portrayed by Meryl Streep. It was almost offered to Meryl Streep. What? Can you imagine? Really? Yes. Can you can you imagine what a different film this would have been if like, Ripley had been portrayed? Like, I do not see... Xenomorph's uh, choice. Ripley's choice. <laughs> you know? Of all of the films that are, you know, of all the things that she's done, one thing that she's never really done has been like an action. Are you just saying that? Because Are you just saying that because it's Meryl Streep and she's probably been considered for every role ever? Or did you like look that up? No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I looked it up and she was... She was, she was almost cast to- as Kermit the Frog in Muppet State Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> Almost went in an entirely different direction. Um, but, uh, but no, like she, she, it was down to her versus Sigourney Weaver and the, and Sigourney Weaver just, uh, in test screenings just blew everybody away. So, um, I just thought that was interesting. The other thing that I wanted, that I wanted to mention, uh, horror fans are going to appreciate this. So Ridley Scott at the time had never really done a science fiction or a horror film and the producer Walter Hill hadn't done one either. So they they really didn't know kind of what to do for the tone. So the writers suggested that they watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974 wow. and they were deeply affected by Texas Chainsaw Massacre and it largely informs how they approached the horror elements of Alien. And I thought that was really fascinating. The other thing that I found really interesting was that um this in many ways the writer um Fear of God listeners and maybe horror aficionados will possibly remember the name Dan O'Bannon, who wrote Alien. I did remember that name. I saw it and I remembered it. Yep. Yep. And uh, Alien was largely written as a direct reaction to his disapproval of the way Dark Star turned out. That was the film that was uh, the directorial debut of John Carpenter, who we spent a great deal of time talking about, did a whole profile on him. Um, But Dark Star, um, Dan O'Bannon didn't really like anything about Dark Star and wrote this to try to dive deeper into the the fear factor of the potential of that story. And uh, I just I just thought that was really I thought that was really fascinating. I mean, there's no doubt about it that Aliens the better movie, but I think I think John Carpenter, you know, you know my affection for him. Yeah. Like grenades in a backpack. <laughs> so uh so how did you so what do you like about this film? What do you dislike? How do you feel? Um, what do you, what's the what? I, I I appreciate the question. Um, I like a lot about this movie. I mean, right off the bat, the title sequence is really strong and effective. Um, oh, I know. So is. I love the part where the alien jumps out of his chest and starts singing, hello, my baby. Hello, my darling. <laughs> did you did you watch the director's cut? Because I, <laughs> no, I just did I've the theatrical seen, cut, but I heard I've, that that chestburster right. scene had a real big surprise. Yeah. And I, I didn't see that. I, I wouldn't have seen that coming. Right. You know, I, I, I couldn't help but think of that space ball scene when, you know, when I rewatched it. 
You just keep waiting for him to put his top hat on, his little cane, and dance his little his little awesome. feet, his little gross feet. Um, Ooh, so what? wait, Tell wait, me. what? Brief, Do it. Brief pause. So on that, I just have to note. I said this on the Feeling Film podcast too, but that 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 moment when the thing bursts out of his chest. So in the script, all it says is the thing emerges. That's all it said, except for John Hurt. And Ridley Scott, of course, and the effects guys, the rest of the cast had only the vaguest notion of what was about to happen. They had no real idea exactly what they were about to see. They certainly didn't expect to literally get splattered in the face with blood and guts. They had no idea. So their their faces, their reactions are authentic because they had no idea how the scene was about to play out. And I think that's genius i think that's so brilliant um i i love thinking about that when i think about that chest burster scene specifically well and you know in the spirit of that and you know pouring out a cold one for john hurt i will say like the poor guy has the most inglorious death ever in yes. film like like the face hugger gets him okay uh he should be dead okay? yes he should be dead like that's it that should be I mean, we don't want John Hurt to leave. We like John Hurt, but when the face hugger gets you and when your friends try to take it off and it throttles you around the neck, like you should be dead. That should be the end. Yeah. That should be the end of you. Instead, he gets like impregnated with Hello, my baby. (laughs) And then he comes back (laughs) and and he's like, We're just going to call it Hello, my baby now. (laughs) He's like, He's like, What up? And everybody's like, Olivander, make me a wand. Oh my God. And they're, enjoying their space beverages um their blue milk that's a star wars reference it's all fun <laughs> and games it's all revel- revelry and then the friggin hell of my baby pops out and like he just can't get a break he can't nope. get a break it's sad no nope. like you know you almost have to pour two out for john hurt in this movie because <laughs> he gets face hugged and then he gets chest bursted that's ugh, that's rough that stuff so true. man one day one day on the pod we should have like top character deaths in horror movies ever that would be a fun Ooh, i would love that'd that. be a fun list i would love put john that. hurt put john hurt from alien on the list it's it's one of them it's got to be one of them like sincerely though like i just want to I, I just want to make it official so we called it follows jimmy <laughs> we're we're officially calling the xenomorph hello my baby hello my that's, baby well the chest burster the chest burster at least the chest well no that's right he does grow into the xenomorph so yeah sure that's that's right that's right that's him that's that, yeah that's they say in the film that's kane's son <laughs> so so yeah. just, just think about that um but uh but yeah so we'll just call him hello my baby um right. but uh yeah i mean one of the things that i wrote down in terms of likes for this film th- this is one of those rare movies that and I want to call back to what we said when we actually when we were talking about Frankenstein. I, I I grieve again when I watch this film that modern films, uh, more recent films, have lost the art of the opening credits sort of style, where action is always taking place over top of opening credits. Now right. they don't have this big presentation of the opening credits. Whenever I see Alien, it always puts me immediately in the right mindset to watch this film. Like those opening three or four minutes, it just breathes. It takes its time. It shows you the expanse of space. It's rolling through the the opening title sequences. Then it takes a good three or four minutes to show you the ship before right. anything happens. And, you know, other directors, if, if Alien were not a franchise and it were made today, 
If the first film were introduced today, I dare say I don't know that a that a production studio would have allowed for that much. They'd have been like, oh, your audience is going to get bored. They're going to zone out on you. They're going to leave. But this film, that amount of patience always sets me in the exact right place to be able to experience what I'm about to experience. And it's that artifice that we've talked about where there's just a theatricality to some of those older films and their attention to giving the audience time to warm up and to to be drawn into the film. And I just I miss that about about more recent films that they just don't typically take the time to do that. And I wish they did, um, because this film, I always think the other thing that I think about when I view that opening sequence is I think about how God loves CG, but that's no, all. No, he doesn't. <laughs> no, he doesn't. Um, no. That's all practical effects sure that's all you know somebody crafted that set and built that set and it makes me just kind of sad that that those elements of film it is funny it's funny you bring it's funny you bring that up specifically i don't i don't think they're gone i I would agree with you we we have steered far afield of the practical effects and and on the one hand i'm sympathetic you know budgetarily i I guess that's that's a, a cheaper route maybe um but yeah i think it is you know, I, I think, and as a fan of, of popcorn movies and movies with a lot of CGI, you know, it is just about doing it well and, and trying to right. figure out where it's used effectively. I think of Christopher Nolan. I mean, Christopher Nolan is a, yeah, yeah, is a, is a, is a, a hell of a director, um, just period. But, um, I, I read something I, for Christmas a couple of years ago. I got like this coffee table Batman Christopher Nolan book. Um, yeah. that's just got some fun trivial bits and and factoids and whatnot. And I remember reading something perhaps in there, perhaps elsewhere where Nolan is such a fan of filmmaking film, the art of film, that even sequences where he uses CG, his, he insists that the scene begins and ends practically. Like if you're going to have CG, the scene has to begin and end without it. Like you've got to have some practical anchors on it. And, and I don't know. I just, I just think it's not about, using or not using CGI. It's about being a smart filmmaker who knows what tools you have at your disposal and being able to use those effectively. Um, and I think it's okay to use CG, uh, but as we see with alien, like, and it's been a while since I've seen any of them that might include CGI versions of the xenomorph, but, um, you know, it's so effectively rendered with just a guy in a rubber suit in this film. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And you've mentioned before, I forget exactly in what conversation we were having, but the, uh, oh, I think it was in our conversation about The Thing, because you were comparing the special effects of The Thing to the effects in this film, and H.R. Geiger's work, mm-hmm. I mean, is, is is just mind-blowing. It's, sure. it's, it's a work of, it's a real work of genius. You had, t- you had texted me when you were watching the film, just every time, every time you see that xenomorph creature design, it's it's so unlike any other right. any other monster that exists well, in sort and, of horror cinema. Yeah, and the actual word I used there was exquisite. I mean, it's so yes, you know, and and with the thing somehow and and through a, a perfect storm, uh, uh, a perfect creative chemistry that creates Alien versus the Thing. Now the Thing has its fans, of course, but there's nothing you leave the Thing and and you leave the thing and think about how grossed out you got, <laughs> mm. you know, like mm-hmm. you, you, you watch alien. You're like, man, that is a terrifying creature 
And so the subtext, the subconscious registering what that has to come from somewhere. And you're, you're just right. registering how potently that thing is designed. Um, and that's why you've got alien one, two, three, four, five, Prometheus, alien covenant, say, AVP. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's because that in large part due to that creature design. Yeah. No question about it. And I think that that's the, that's a large part of the staying power of the film too, is that that creature is so indelible in your minds, even prior to the, the franchise films, the alien in this film receives exactly four minutes of screen time. It's in it for such a brief little spurts and brief little moments, but its impact is tremendous. I mean, it's absolutely tremendous. That's probably a good segue into scares, uh, sure. of which there are plenty uh, in this film. The The first thing that I wrote down, I looked up to see if any creatures in God's green earth actually do this thing that the alien does. What? And it like bleed it, acid, it turns out, have an internal extra mouth? What, what, no, what do you mean, um, do this? It turns out that uh, wasps, uh, a variety of wasps called the braconid wasp, a braconid wasp will inject their eggs into caterpillars and they later hatch out of the poor caterpillar victims in exact alien fashion. And then I wrote, when I wrote down that little trivial bit, um, I wrote, dear God, (laughs) (laughs) there's something in nature that exists that does what that face hugger does. And that is terrifying. That is absolutely terrifying to me. And dear Lord, help us if those ever go near a radiation plant and grow to unusual size, uh, just, oh, no, no, forget no. But uh, the second the second thing that I had before I bounce it to you, because I, I have plenty of scary bits, but the second thing that I wrote down was simply, screw that cat. Yeah, that what a, that's ridiculous. That, that like, cat's dying. Maybe if it was a dog, maybe if it was a dog, you know, like just, just subconsciously in the culture, dogs are more friendly and appreciated than cats. Cats tend to have a temperament and all that sort of stuff. I'm not speaking ill of cats. I'm simply saying, culturally speaking, we tend to prefer dogs to cats. So in a scenario where a monstrous, hulking, two-mouthed, acid-blooded monstrosity is terrorizing you, I just screw the cat. You know, get just go, get in your escape pod. Yeah, Yeah, I'm with you. No, forget that. Um, on, on a very uh, uh, cursory note, I wrote down just the discovery of the giant pilot alien. That was pretty, mm. pretty wicked. Yeah, um, that's called they, the space jockey. They never yes. say it in the film, but it's it's come to be known as the space jockey. Right. Uh, that the facehugger falling on Ripley after it's uh, out yeah. its way uh, of Dallas's death. I don't know if you remember the image. I just wrote the alien just wants a hug. He's just like yes. Come here! <laughs> he really, <laughs> he really thought he found a buddy, you know? <laughs> like, he hey, just, surprise! Right. <laughs> See, really? Have you ever read the children's story, the tree story of the big bad wolf? No. No, the three little pigs, the tree story of the three little pigs. Uh-uh. It's this, it's this lovely story. You'd love it. Go check it out from the library, read it to your son. Um, but it's all the three little pig story from the wolf's perspective. And it's all about how he's just misunderstood and he's got a cold and that's why he keeps blowing down their houses. He just really wants to borrow some, he keeps you know, sneezing. yeah, some baking ingredients and he keeps sneezing and they just take advantage <laughs> of him and they're cruel little swine. Oh um, so I, I would love, like, we should write this down. I would, nobody steal this. Go, don't, don't leave this in the pod, Reed. Someone's going to steal this idea. We should do <laughs> an epi- typewriter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we should do a story of alien, but it's all from his perspective. He's just like, you know, 
This is how he gets born. It just is, you know, like I'm here, everybody. And they're all like looking at him all aghast. And he's like, Oh, gotta get out of here. You know, and then when Dallas shows up, he's like, hug, I want to hug, you know. Oh my gosh. And he's just ultra affectionate yeah. and unfortunately has a really lethal kiss. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like Lenny from a mice and men. He just, you know, he's just looking oh for someone to, to be a friend and he hasn't, or, or Frankenstein. We'll go with that. You know, he hasn't been sure. taught how to rein in these impulses in such a way that doesn't harm everybody. You know, like at oh the end, gosh. at the end, that's a scary scene. And I would, and yes. I've got it listed. Oh yes. He's just chilling. He's just trying to take a nap. He's like, yeah. you yeah. know, she's like, out of here. I'll stay over here. She's, 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 you know, she seems like a nice person. She saved the cat. So maybe yeah. she'll take me with her. He's yeah. just chilling. And he's just, he, he, he's just sitting there and he's like, what's up Ripley? You know? And she freaks <laughs> out. Goodness gracious, man. When she, when she's on the, when she's all suited up, you know, she's right. got suited up and then he like turns around. He's like, Hey, what's it? What's what yeah. happened? What's happening to everybody? <laughs> Why is he doing that? Thing. He's like, no. Oh God. Oh God. This went me. so wrong. <laughs> I just want to be friends. <laughs> <laughs> and I can imagine in that alternate movie version, you know, that's the moment where like the tragic piano scene, <laughs> like the music, just the dulcet tones. Are Cause the wicked, no. the wicked human. As, you know, <laughs> the wicked, to death evil the humans. Cold, you know, the, uh, the cold of space. Oh my gosh, that's that's awesome. Every single one of my moments that I wrote down for scares <laughs> now are no longer scary to me. Now I'm never going to be able to watch this. Movie now you just feel bad way. for him. And now I'm just like, oh, this poor alien. Right. Thing. He just oh doesn't feel gosh. good. I mean, like, if your body could take you from thumb size at Hello, my baby, and take yeah. you to six foot, seven foot you know, hulking monster in like 24 <laughs> hours, biologically, that's going to hurt. You know, you're just, your body yeah. can't handle that kind of stress and strain. So he's really just trying to get a nap somewhere. <laughs> he's just trying to chill, you know, like he can crazy humans keep blowtorching me. Right? I don't understand. <laughs> he can't help that his blood is acid. He doesn't know any better. <laughs> and really he's trying to warm er He's trying to warn everybody. Hey guys, no, don't do that. You don't right, understand right. this. This is going to go it's badly for you. <laughs> It'll hurt you more than it does me. <laughs> That's it. And then he becomes like the parent figure. To this will hurt you more than it hurts me. <laughs> hey, robot guy. Tell him. Robot guy. What? Spoiler. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That is oh, hilarious. you didn't tell him you were a robot yet? <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of wow. which, I wow. did write that down as my as one of my scary moments. Like the moment when Ash gets revealed. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. scary, but it's also just trippy and freaky and yeah. like what in the world is happening i have no idea what's happening until you know it all comes full circle like the and then parker comes and just bashes his head right off of his body i mean it is oh it is it is really really freaky well did you have any other no, you've ruined all my scares now. I know, so now I, know. I can only think of the poor misunderstood all just alien <laughs> <laughs> the, poor, the poor xenomorph that just wants a hug and a kiss and unfortunately right, right. gets yeah. stuck with mankind i know uh, like we can't uh, take care of well, this is why we can't have good things why we can't have nice things mankind you know that we uh, just kill that, it and the, zoom it out of the airlock it looks different than us this is a whole movie about xenophobia see xenomorph xenophobia <laughs> That's the, the the tagline of the film is actually not referring to the humans. It's refer it's what every alien parent tells to children. Now remember, child, in space, wow. no one can hear you scream. <laughs> so don't go out into space. Oh, don't trust those it's people. It's like out an there. alien. It's like an alien. Get out. You know. It's like oh. wow. <laughs> 
totally reframing the entire franchise for me. The alien is the hero. You don't understand. You don't understand. Oh, oh, wow. That's, man. That was great. That's that was good. great. Um, well, okay. So <laughs> I don't even know how we shift from that into into talking about actual substantial themes. Oh, and so now let's bring it down and talk right. seriously about about these themes. Well, I think there's there's a lot there's a lot going on in this movie. And this is one of those films like and I'm not really going to try very hard to bring something specifically new to the conversation, but this is the kind of film that if we were trying to bring something new, it would be we'd be hard-pressed to do so because this film has been dissected and studied and it's been written about and it's been talked about and it's been explored and commentaries and everything. This is a, this is a very rich thematic film. Um, yes, but has it been done on the fear of God uh, with a view towards the intersection of faith and horror? I don't know that it has. Until not today. until now. <laughs> um, so, so what I wanted to say very specifically about this, and, and this, this is going to be a little jarring. So I, I apologize listeners, but I just, I just want to express this. As sensitively as I possibly can, um, there, there is, and I think it's intentional in the research that I've done, there's some intentional sort of metaphorical examination of male-dominated sexuality in the, in the plot where basically, specifically, and again, I'll be as sensitive as I can here, specifically the way that the face hugger makes his way onto the onto the ship is by essentially raping Kane. And he, so it's, it's this idea that he, you know, forcibly attaches himself to Kane and impregnates him. And not only that, but there's other moments throughout the scene that sort of, or throughout the movie that sort of call out to that kind of idea. I'm thinking also specifically of, of, it always struck me as a little bizarre until I looked at it through this light, but the moment when Ash tries to kill Ripley, like he doesn't try to kill her by just you know breaking her neck or or uh, you know just stabbing her or something like that. He he takes a rolled up magazine and tries to literally shove it down her throat. Yeah, it is an odd choice. And yeah. um and so when when you when you look at it in light of some of those specific moments, kind of as a kind of as a metaphorical commentary on how dominated by just the the idea of sexuality is it's it's just this it's it's an interesting thing to look at an interesting thing to explore and there is an element of that that I specifically want to want to talk about that I di- I didn't read anywhere else although this film has been covered so much I'm sure it's been talked about at some point or another but did you did you see any of that or is that something that that I mean you're- uh, you know I mean the 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 there is a a sensuality, if not necessarily a sexuality, though, though we could definitely use that word to the facehugger element. Um, I, I don't know that, that that would have been an initial like, okay, this movie is saying these particular things or right, engaging right. this conversation. But that said, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I know you said Meryl Streep was in the running, but in early stages, I believe Ripley was written as a male character. Yeah. Yes. So the way that they wrote the script is that 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 is true, but the sort of the broader context is that when they wrote the script, uh, they actually wrote all of the characters as gender neutral. Sure. And so any of any of the characters, including Dallas or anybody else, could have been cast as a male or a female. But then the writers later revealed that they never pictured Ripley as a female. 
Um, they always thought that Ripley would be a male, even though they had written the script specifically to be gender neutral. So, yeah, that's yeah. I mean, I, I do think I, I think it's, um, you know, you kind of can't escape the nature of I mean, Ripley has become as iconic as the xenomorph in Easily. terms of just film history and legacy and, and iconography. You know, this strong, non objectified uh, yes. female character. You know, I mean, like, if we're going to draw parallels between what you're talking about, I mean, even the, the, the xenomorph's double mouth element has a very sort of male yes. characteristic to it, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, also, I think, I could be wrong here, but I think even Geiger's art has a pretty, there's some eroticism to that, right? It does. Yeah. No, that's you absolutely know, so true. So I, I can, I can see where that's there. Um, you know, I don't know exactly what sort of how you launch that necessarily into, okay, what, what is this saying? You know, how do we engage that, um, thematically other than just, is it about, you know, a, a more male dominant sort of subculture in this case, just these crewmates on a, on a spaceship and trying to overcome the, you know, is, is the xenomorph meant to be the sort of raging id of this sort of male culture? You know what right, I mean? Right, right. Um, I, I can sort of see some of that. And, you know, that that bleeds into something that was, that that I wanted to talk about a bit more broadly. I don't know, I don't know what themes you wanted to bring to the table because this, this one's, this one's likely to be kind of big. And I don't say that to see, you know, I just, I want to make sure that you have the opportunity to express any thoughts that you gleamed out of this. But one of, one of the ideas that I, that I had when I was thinking about that specifically and I was thinking about the fact that it's revealed later in the plot of the film that the Wayland yutani group, um, who have commissioned the Nostromo in general, um, that they actually wanted to acquire this creature, that they wanted to, to bring it back. That's part of Ash's mission is to bring that creature in and to protect the specimen by his own admission at the expense of the crew. The crew is now expendable. This specimen has to be brought back. And one of the things that it made me think is it made me think of this film in its entirety as kind of an indictment against this sort of chauvinistic, maybe a more appropriate word is misogynistic, this this sort of dominating idea, this controlling idea that if we discover a thing on Earth, in space, in the ocean, whatever, if we discover it, that we immediately have the right or the capacity to control it for our own purposes and to control it for our own ends. And I feel like this film, at least what I got out of it in this exploration, is indicting that mentality, that that's a deadly, a dangerous mentality, a very horrifically misguided mentality to think that the entire universe is merely your playground and that you can that you can discover a thing and that you can control it and i think that's that that plays in a little bit to some of the things that i picked up on some of the visual metaphors and the thematic metaphors about this idea of of rape and sexual assault it's interesting to me that i think in the culture at large we tend to respond a bit more passionately and a bit more violently to crimes of sexual assault than we do even to to murder or, or, or violent crimes that don't have that component attached to it. Um, I'm not making a commentary on, on whether or not we should respond that way. I just, I think sociologically, we tend to respond a bit more viscerally 
to hearing about those kind of crimes than we do to to hearing about almost anything else. And it's just fascinating to me looking at that kind of mentality, the the kind of mentality that would view another human being and would say, you are you are mine to do with as I see fit. Sure. And then connecting that in a larger context to the view of people who see the world that way or see creation that way or right. see the universe that way and all of God's creatures in it or anything. Right, and they right. just They just say, you are mine to do with as I please. And I think this film is a pretty profound indictment of that mentality in general. Well, and, you know, it makes me think of... Um you know, even just Genesis language of being given dominion. And, and, mm, mm-hmm. and I, I think substantiating what you're saying it's too often in the church and in our just weaker moments uh, outside of it, we, we view that as some sort of, some sort of encouragement to, to dominate. You know, ah, to, yes. Whereas yes. I think the more faithful view of that concept is about stewardship. You know, it is, mm, it is mm-hmm. caretaking, um, not, domination and and right I, I i do think that you know this movie definitely uh deals with that concept that you're outlining there and it's interesting i mean just just the the willingness it's funny um i don't you haven't said this yet but i thought this is where you're going it doesn't wrinkle your your theme at all but it adds an interesting sort of um, idea to it that the controlling operating system of the nostromo is called mother you know, yeah, right, um, right. You know, kind of, kind of. I'm sure we could run places with that, but I did have your your putting in mind kind of where my theme goes too, and that's, you know, I think that something really interesting is being talked about here, and and maybe I'm just recontextualizing what you're saying, or maybe it's a whole separate thing, but I think they really entwine uh, in an interesting way. Um, something I've really grown to uh, dislike. And, and have a distaste for in my adulthood, um, and, and hopeful maturation is what I call kind of ends means philosophy, theology. Right. Right. Um, right. And, 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 and some might hear some of this and call it naive. You know, perhaps it is. Uh, I don't know, but it is sort of where I'm at in my sort of journey these days. And, and something I took away from this, you, you made the note, you know, Ash's mission is retrieval with the ultimate goal of study domination, if we will. Right. Right. But what stands in the way of that is these other people, you know, the, Mm. the, the end goal of, you know, these, this shadow company that has sanctioned Ash to execute this mission, the end goal is domination and who cares what gets in our way. And what I wrote down is like, at what point and when our goals that are quote unquote for the greater good worth pursuing. When does it stop become a worthwhile goal? You know, it's a, yeah. it's a slippery slope. And, and where this took me sort of in my, in my brain train, as it were, was like, I do think there's lawmaking ends and means and there's theology ends and means. Like in our culture, lawmaking ends and means allows for restriction. Um, you know, I, I don't mean to touch this as a hot button, but just to use an example, like gun laws, like a, a person may want stricter laws the end is less careless preventable deaths right they those ends kind of justify the means so you could make a case that in this particular instance the end of okay we want to prevent easily preventable deaths justify the means which is 
we're going to restrict your access. Does that make sense at all? Oh, so the, yes. The, in, in this Definitely case, the answer for the means. Whereas, you know, we're going to, we're going to quote unquote restrict your rights. Whereas faithful Christian theology says the cross obliterated restriction from the table. So, so restrictions mm-hmm. go away in a theological sort of ends means conversation. I know this is right. a little labyrinthine. I hope it's making sense. Um, like for, in, for instance, I may not like the person who is still welcome at the table. They may have harmed me deeply, but whether I like it or not, my desire to see them restricted from the community is not appropriate. You know, my, they have, they have harmed me. Thus the end goal being, I don't want to be in community with them is not appropriate. So I don't get to restrict them. Whereas in the sort of natural, if we want to use sort of Pentecostal language, sometimes we do restrict certain things because the ends do kind of justify the means. I know this is going Mm -hmm. all over the place, but in the movie specifically, you know, any, anything that causes destruction that, that, that harms in its effort to achieve a certain thing, I think is, is, is not a worthwhile endeavor. Um, right. You know, if it, if it would take, if it would take life and cause us to sacrifice lives of others, it probably shouldn't be done, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, and, and I think specifically in terms of ends mean stuff, I think of like capital punishment, like, Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, barking up a very big tree there, but like, we just don't get to justify that. Like there's so many, there's so many conversations I think of over the years where a, a person of faith would justify something like a capital punishment as well. Now they can't harm anyone else or because they did this much harm. We now, this is what is the natural consequence. Like, no, (laughs) you know? Right. Well, and I don't know if I don't know if that's making any sense. I know it's a little uh, hard to parse out, but uh, well, it's firing it's firing a couple of cylinders off in 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 my mind and in my heart. Um, one thing I do want to comment on about your your capital punishment, I, I, I'll I'll be very vocal about this. Listeners, you know, can feel free to disagree with us about anything, but I've been a long-standing anti-death penalty uh, person uh, since I was 13 years old, oddly enough. Um, it's one of the few political stances that I came to very early. Um, a lot of things have some nuance and some confusion and what I say the jury is still out on, but I'm very against uh, the idea of of the death penalty and capital punishment for a variety of reasons that aren't worth getting into here. But I will quote our oft-cited uh, Brian Stevenson. I was going to do it. Just, but go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, no, sorry. No, just it, mercy. But, but, you know, this may be the quote that you're thinking of, but he said, you know, the real question is not whether or not they deserve to die, but do we deserve to kill? Right. And, right. you know, have, have we earned that capacity and that authority? And here's one of the things that it makes me think of. You're, and you're, so you're it's talk- clear that's not meant to be a rhetorical question on his part. He is decisively saying, no, <laughs> right. we don't yeah, deserve absolutely. to kill. <laughs> absolutely. And something that it makes me think of, you're talking about, we're, we're, we're having this conversation about, you know, dominion versus domination and the table and who's invited versus this other thing. The, the, the. So, so as I was listening to you. Not big ideas at all. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> as I was listening to you, a few things just started just sort of firing off in, in my heart and mind. And, and I'm going to try to make them as coherent as, as possible. So one of the first things that I thought of is, I, you know, it reminded me of two things that I feel like religion is often indicted for. I feel like religion is frequently indicted, uh, and specifically Christianity. I shouldn't say religion because I don't think Hinduism or Buddhism gets the same kind of flack because it's not framed the same way. But um, indicted for exclusivity, where, uh, you know, you, you have to accept Christ to, to be part of the Christian community is what 
atheists, agnostics, and non-Christians often indict Christianity for. As they say, sure. you know, it's very exclusive. It's this very narrow way uh, kind of idea. But then as I'm thinking about it, and I'm thinking in your example of, you know, we may not like who's at the table with us. And I, and I think that, that exclusivity is kind of inherent in our nature. As much as we would love to pretend sure, that we're very sure. inclusive, I think that exclusivity is very inherent in our nature in that, you know, you can look at, we we will have a tendency to say like, oh, I'm, you know, really open hearted and open armed and everybody, there's a line in a Paul Simon song uh, from his most recent album where um, it's the, the song is called Cool Papa Bell and it's awesome. It's got some foul language in it, but everybody should look it up and listen to it. But he says in it, he says, you know, um, heaven has been found and it's it's 16 trillion light years away, but we're all going to get there someday. Um, yeah, we're all going to get there someday. And then he says, but not you. You stay and explain the suffering you caused and the pain you caused. And it it chills me every time I hear him say that line because it's that idea. It's like, oh, yeah, we're all going to get to heaven someday. Not you. you. You can't come. And here's what it also makes me think of. That's the first sort of big idea. You talking about who is and is not at the table and whether or not we're comfortable at that. Sort of tying what I what I was thinking about when I was listening to you back to this idea of like domination and and sort of the misogyny, the chauvinism that that often mankind, and I say specifically, you know, capital M-A-N, more of a patriarchal sort of idea, that the way in which they navigate through the universe, it's very much about control. It's very much about what can we manipulate and what can we control. And one of the things that I was thinking of, the second thing that people often indict religion for is when people say that they have a hard time believing in God, frequently... The argument will largely be based on I can't reconcile a, a God, a God's existence when there's so many wars, there's so much disease, people do all these evil, cruel things to one another. And this was this was interesting to me. This, this is kind of happening in real time. So I apologize to you and to listeners if this is a bit confusing. But I'm sitting here thinking about this idea that they frequently indict God or say God can't exist or there's there's no possible way. I don't see God in this world. And it's usually on the basis of some element of control. Why didn't God control this? Why didn't he stop this? Why didn't he uh, revoke this? Why didn't he intervene? So it's almost as if they say he can't exist because he's not controlling the situation. So he can't possibly exist. Yet those same people, I would venture to say, probably would strongly resist the idea of being controlled, of being sort of dominated. And I think about when we look at the suffering that takes place in the world, when we look at the the things at large that we have a hard time understanding, it is difficult. It's difficult for me to understand why God doesn't just say, okay, stop, everybody out of the pool, that's it, you're done, like, y- right, you don't get to do right. that anymore, uh, you stop, you go over there, and, and I struggle with that. Uh, myself with that idea. But then I think about this. I think about Job and it's actually, I didn't, I didn't plan this specifically, but this was actually part of the passage that I wanted to bring in. The, the biblical passage that I wanted to bring into this was more talking about the idea of, of misogyny and thinking they can control everything. But I want to read it really briefly and then I'll sort of put a bow on my idea here. Job chapter 41 verses one through 10. So the scenario for Job is that Job spends the entire book railing against his sufferings. There's Four comforters with him, three of whom uh, just make him feel worse because of their philosophizing and because of their ideas of why things have happened to him. Joe cries out to God multiple times. And when God finally answers, you would expect or you would hope that God would be sort of a bit more comforting. But God is very almost confrontational when he talks to Job. And this is 
in Job chapter 41, it is God speaking to Job, and he says this. He says, can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Will it keep begging you for mercy? Will it speak to you with gentle words? Will it make an agreement with you for you to take it as your slave for life? Can you make a pet of it like a bird or put a leash on it for the young women in your house? Will traders barter for it? Will they divide it up among the merchants? Can you fill its hide with harpoons or its head with fishing spears? And then verse 8 says, If you lay a hand on it, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Verse 9 says, any hope of subduing it is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. And then verse 10 is where I'm going to sort of wrap this bow. It says, no one is fierce enough to rouse it. Who then is able to stand against me? Which is what God is saying. Sure. Tying this back into the idea of alien, the Weyland-Yutani group, again, getting back to this, that they believe two lies that I think a frightening amount of people still believe one that they have the capacity to control things that they don't understand. And two, that in that capacity, they have a right to control things that they do not understand. And one of the things, if I'm able to wrap a bow on this whole idea, I think about this film. I think about how they wanted to bring back this alien creature. All that resulted was death and destruction in every single one of the films. That's all that resulted is continual death and destruction. Um, it's just a creature of pure, as Ash calls it, pure survival instinct. It is just a force, as it were. And it's uh, relentless and uncontrollable. But when they when they try in their arrogance to think that they can subdue it and like the Leviathan in this passage of Job, they think that they're going to tame it and domesticate it and that they're going to control it for their own purposes. The end result is utter destruction and utter death. That's all that they're that's all that they're left with. And I think that, again, getting back to what I mentioned earlier, that this film is really an indictment of any sort of mentality that would say the earth is mine to control. Sure. I can do with it what I want. Instead, sure. we need to, I I do, it's kind of my thoughts and my response to this film, and then I'll welcome yours, because then we probably need to wind down. But I step away from this film, and I remember there are some things in this world that I need to be okay with the fact that I will never control them. I right. will never understand them. I will never be able to manipulate them for my purposes, and I have to I have to recognize that. And above all of those things is a God that I even more so cannot understand, who as much as I would want him to control the situation or as much as I would think he probably should control the situation. That is simply not the paradigm that he's given to us. The leadership of of Christ is not one of controlling. It's right, one of leading. Right. It's not one of domination. It's it, it is one of sovereignty, but that sovereignty is executed by him laying down his life versus controlling and manipulating the puzzle pieces on the chessboard, as it were. Um, so it's not a domineering. It's not a dominating leadership. It's a servant leadership. It's a it's a giving of himself and emptying of himself, which is so contrary to the other ideas that we would have where we would see the things of the universe simply at our disposal. Yeah. All right. Wow. There you go. Uh, That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, you, you, uh, if you use this word, I don't remember, but to, to draw a fine punctuation point here, this notion of coercion, like, you know, the, this organization manipulates this entire situation to try to achieve a very particular end, which 
is a total disregard for humanity, for souls, if you will. And, right. you know, is trying to wrestle down a monstrosity and, and, yeah. and yeah. there is hell to pay for everybody. And, and to maybe put, uh, a fun podcast button on this. It, it, the more you talk, the more it made me think of, you know, if, if you keep ascending the, <clears throat> the sort of spiritual, the sort of cosmic food chain, uh, you land at Yahweh himself. And I think what we are ultimately meant to learn in the face of majesty, you know, whether it's space monster that is pure survival instinct in the words of Ash or Yahweh himself, who is, uh, uh, the unquenchable fire. It's that. Yeah. You know, the fear, the fear of that is the beginning of wisdom, my friend. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, well, and, and I, I joke in terms of using our language there, but, but, you know, th- there is a, there is a holiness to deference. You know, there is yes. a, there is a, a faithfulness to submission to recognition of one's place in the food chain um, yeah. and realizing we are not at the top of it. Um, yeah. And, and Job recognizes it in, in the latter part of the book uh, something that many people may find hard to understand his response to God's sort of more authoritative, bombastic, putting him in his place kind of thing is he says, I will place my hand over my mouth. And he oddly seems to find peace in simply the fact that the maker of heaven and earth communicated with him. And that that he that he is in this sort of because there is a peace, I think, that comes with just recognizing what we're not. I think there's a peace that comes with recognizing the things that we don't have a capacity for, uh, the things that we aren't in control of, the relinquishing that. I think there is a there is an immense peace that comes with that. Oddly, we resist it continually. But but I agree. And I can't think of a better button to put on the show, then uh, the fear of that is the, <laughs> is the beginning of wisdom. So that having been said, we've had a, a, a lengthy conversation already, but uh, you're ready to give old, you're ready to give old, uh, hello, my baby, the, the David <laughs> S. Pumpkins treatment. Yes, let's do it. So as we do at the end of every episode, we like to pay homage and deference ourselves to the great Tom Hanks and his interpretation of the SNL writers. Lovely. David S. Pumpkins as seen, uh, circa fall 2016 on Saturday Night Live. So we rank each movie we discuss, uh, by a David S. Pumpkins metric with consideration towards style, uh, which is a little bit of a loose interpretation, but then substance. Oh, nope. Style, scares, and then substance. Um, so read of, uh, Ridley Scott's Alien in the David S. Pumpkins meter. Where are you going to put style? It is a solid, unquestionable, unqualified five. I think it's a perfect film. You I, I literally think you're it's qualifying perfect. your five. You said it was unqualified, so stop talking. Five. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to it, it's it's a classic if ever there was one. So um, and not in that Wolfman kind of like meh kind of classic way, <laughs> but in that Ridley Scott alien kind of way. Hello, my baby. Hello, my darling. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm going to echo your five and go with a five myself. Um, as far as scares go, I would say like, it's, it's always hard when you've seen something already, um, right, to, to right. sort of properly contextualize the psychology of the scares inherent to it. I am just for pure. I mean, it's, I mean, the creature design contributes so much, the atmosphere, the mood, the surprises of things like Ash, things like the chestburster. You know, I'm going to go a solid four and a half on scares. 
All right. And I am going to see your four and a half and raise you to five. I'm a five for scares. Yeah, absolutely. And then lastly, uh, substance, which, you know, is kind of self-explanatory, uh, but just, you know, what, what's going on there beyond just what's on the page. Um, Reed, where would you, where would you land the old substance here? Well, I'm going to shock everybody. This is a solid triple five movie for me. There it is. is. I'm giving it five for substance as well. I think this is, like I said, I think this is a perfect film. Uh, I find nothing to complain about. Every time I watch it, I find more to appreciate and more to gleam out of it and more to talk about. We could have a whole separate episode about different elements of it and and still probably not repeat ourselves. It's uh, it's incredible. So five for me for substance. Well, I'm going to ride your little coattails and I'm going to go with a five as well on substance. All right. So there we go. That might be the highest ranking we've ever given a movie. It may. I mean, the visit was pretty high, <laughs> but it I'm is just masterful. That's a master. Oh, word. it is. Oh my goodness. Okay, so I'm torn because this officially technically gets nine point eight David wow. S. Pumpkins. I'm so tempted to just to just bump up, just round up and say we give it ten David S. Pumpkins. I'm so tempted. Uh, do you want to make it a first or do you sure. want to leave it? Let's let's okay. do it. Let's do it. First ever official solid ten David S. Pumpkins goes to Alien, ladies and gentlemen. Alien is brilliant unparalleled, unrivaled, even 40 years later, we give it 10 David S. Pumpkins, to which we would say, Nathan, any questions? Yeah, I don't think there are any. I don't no, think so. No, I don't. I mean, it's 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 earned them. It's earned I agree. 10 pumpkins. I, I wholeheartedly agree. So as we say on every episode, the fear of alien, I mean, I apologize. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but it is not the end of the conversation. Uh, you can continue the conversation with us about alien or about anything that we've addressed in this episode in a variety of ways. You can reach out to us on Twitter. Nathan, what is our Twitter handle? At the fear of God. You can also reach out to us on Facebook. You can comment on one of our posts there or post there yourself. Uh, there's a link to that through Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at Reed Lackey. And Nathan, where can they find you on Twitter besides the fear of God? At the Nathan Rouse. And you can also go to morethanonelesson.com. Leave a comment there on the official post for this. You can email us, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. That's fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. Not only about Alien, but please also email us your list for nominations for hashtag I love the 90s. We'll be calling out to that on the next few episodes, just to remind everyone. But hashtag I love the 90s, email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. And last, but certainly not least, if you listen to us through iTunes, please consider leaving us a review we haven't had one in a while and we would absolutely love one so um if you like what we give to you every week and uh, if you'd like to comment about that please go over to itunes and leave us a review we would greatly appreciate it nathan thank you so much for having this conversation with me this has been a lot of fun we've gone a little long but i think it's it's uh well deserved it uh the first 10 i'm excited the first 10 for david s pumpkins going to alien that, that surprised me, but I'm excited. Well, there you go. So, guys, uh, check out social media to see where we're going to be going next week, and we will talk to you then. Nathan, thanks so much for having this conversation with me, man. Likewise. See you later, guys. Final report of the commercial starship Nostromo. Third officer reporting. The other members of the crew, Kane... Lambert, Parker, Brett, Ash, 
and Captain Dallas are dead. Cargo and ship destroyed. I should reach the frontier in about six weeks. With a little luck, the network will pick me up. This is Ripley, last survivor of the Nostromo. Signing off.